Our Father, we thank you that you are the one that we are waiting for. And you show us in your word that when these proceedings come to a a close, that you will descend from heaven with a shout, with the trumpet of God, the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. So, Father, we look forward to that day. But I pray that you would help us to stay busy about your business while we wait. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. I was glad to be able to say hello to a lady who came all the way from Alaska to be here tonight. I bet you you didn't come that far. (laughs) Debbie's mom. It's good to see you. If you, if those of you who know Debbie's mom, you know that a few years ago she was in bad shape, and she was wondering if she was going to stay on the top side of this earth or not. But thank God she's come through it, and she's here tonight, and she looks good, and she feels good. Thank God. First Kings chapter three. Some of you may or may not have heard of a person named Ray Stedman. Ray was a godly man, a pastor. Uh, finally used pastor in Palo Alto for quite a few years. He says about the whole book of 1 Kings that it's how to lose a kingdom. 1 Kings, he said, is how to lose a kingdom. Now, God did not take the kingdom away from Solomon during his lifetime because of his promise to David, but the seeds were sown during Solomon's era that caused God to tear the kingdom away from from his descendant. Look at verse 1. Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. I'd like for if you would please to put up the slide that is the outline of the chapter. Can you read that? I thought I put a bigger font than that, but I guess I didn't. Well, let me read it for you. I have it up here. Uh, Verse 1, an unwise marriage. Uh, Verse 2, worship and sacrifices at the high places, which God forbid. And then verses 3 and 4 speak about when Solomon was young, he loved the Lord and walked in his ways. And then verses 5 through 9, God appears to Solomon and tells him to ask for a blessing. You can read it now? Good. And then, not one of the verses, but just a point that I wrote down. As we consider God's appearance to Solomon and Solomon's request, are there lessons for us to learn? And then verses 10 through 14, Solomon's request, please the Lord. It's possible to make a request of God that pleases him. We're going to talk about that. And then finally in verses 16 through 28, God's wisdom is demonstrated out of the mouth of Solomon. Verse 1, the verse part of verse 1. Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Now, this was not an unusual thing that happened. In ancient times, all sorts of rulers made treaties with other kings, other rulers. Uh, 
And even there was even marriage in their family to cement that uh, alliance that they had made. And they would usually have elaborate gifts that they would give to the bride. And Pharaoh wasn't to be outdone in this. In 1 Kings 9, verse 16, it says that Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gezer and burned it with fire and had killed the Canaanites who dwelt in the city and, and had given it as a dowry to his daughter Solomon's wife. So he captured the count of Gezer and said, Here, sweetheart, here's a town for your dowry. Now, it wasn't an old geezer. It was a name of a town. The town's name is Geezer. Now, why did Solomon do this, particularly when God had spoken against marrying the children of pagan kings? Well, God knows our hearts. And he knows there are certain things that will turn our hearts away from him. And bad company is one of them. How I wish I could get this across to every teenager, every teenager in all the high schools in Santa Cruz County, that bad bad company does corrupt good morals. And that goes for adults as well. Not long ago, I spoke at Teen Challenge, and a young man came up to me after I had brought the message and wanted prayer. And I asked him what the prayer was about, and he said, well... He said, I'm afraid I have fallen. He said, I'm an alcoholic, and I fell, and I, I'd like to have prayer that I won't do that again. So we prayed together, and then I asked him, I said, may I ask you a question or two? He said, okay. I said, uh, what happened? He said, well, I got permission after being clean and doing the right thing at Teen Challenge for a while. I got permission to go to the bank. He said, I was at the bank, and across the street from a bank, from the bank, a friend of mine yelled across the street and said, come on over here. I said, now, so you went across the street to meet your friend? He said, yes. I said, where was he standing? He said, next to a bar. So you went across the street and then you fell again. He said, yes, I did. Evil company corrupts good habits. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know, it's really surprising that Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter. Very surprising. Why was it surprising? Well, the Pharaohs were worshipped as pagan deities. It says in the, uh, one of the encyclopedias that I have that the, the incarnations of the deity Horus in life and Osiris in death. Once the cult of Isis and Osiris became prominent, pharaohs were viewed as a bridge between the god Osiris and human beings, and after death the pharaoh was believed to unite with Osiris. So that's one reason, because pharaohs were involved with pagan deities, so don't intermarry with that family. And then, of course, God specifically warned against marrying with unbelievers. I'd like to ask if you would, please, to turn back in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're going to look at six verses. Let's put in at verse 1, Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess 
and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take, your daughter, take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Think about how you feel about your children how tender you feel toward them, how you pray for them when they are in trouble, and how you want to just keep harm away from them at all times. God feels that way about us. He knows what will harm us. He knows what will trip us up. And so he says to the Israelites, don't intermarry with the pagan nations around you. They will turn your heart away from me. Now, with this commandment in mind, in the Mosaic Law, some scholars say that they think that the daughter of Pharaoh must have rejected the pagan deities of Egypt and had come to believe in the God of Israel and agreed to obey the law of Moses, or otherwise Solomon wouldn't have married her. Well, we don't know if that's true or not. That's the, I didn't find any scriptures or anything historically that would make me believe that, but I don't profess to be a scholar either. There are some scholars who do believe that. So we don't know if she actually became a believer in Jehovah. We can't be certain that Solomon disobeyed God by marrying her since we don't know. We do know, however, that Solomon disobeyed God by marrying many other women as he grew older. Every member of the nation Israel was commanded not to marry with the people of the nations that surrounded them. And in addition to this, God laid down specific commands for the kings of his people Israel long before there was ever a king over his people. I'd like to ask you to turn to Deuteronomy 17 to take a look at that. So God told the, the rank-and-file person in Israel, don't intermarry with the pagan nations around you. Now he's going to say something to the kings that he has appointed or that his people have appointed. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, put in at verse 14. And when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren shall be set as a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you, who is not your brother. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Israel was delivered from Egypt. God says, don't go back. Verse 17. 
Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom and his children in the midst of Israel. What a good word for the kings of Israel, and what a good word for the people of God. What a good word for us tonight. Now, we're not going to look at this in detail because someone else is going to teach 1 Kings 11 a few weeks from now. But I do want to refer to a few verses in 1 Kings 11. It says that Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to the, clung, I think that's the word. Solomon clung to these in love. And I didn't make this up. This is what the verse says. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. You know, I thought about this. I know that um, Solomon built a beautiful place, not only for God to worship God, the temple, but he built a wonderful house for himself, and he built a really nice place for his wife. But can you imagine? And it was a big place, very big, large. It had to be large to have 700 bedrooms or maybe a 1,000 bedrooms. I'm not sure. I can imagine walking down the hall and a beautiful woman's walking this way. And Solomon says, now, what's your name? Are you one of my wives? How could he possibly know 700 names and 300 names of the concubines? I know I couldn't. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because he had turned away from the Lord God of Israel. Now, why does God make such an important issue out of marrying with other people and out of marrying more than one person? Why does God make that? Why are we only supposed to marry one person? Now, I want to say something about if you've been married more than once, uh, you're not to go out and shoot yourself or think that God doesn't love you anymore because it's not the unpardonable sin. But it is something you shouldn't do. You shouldn't marry more than once. 
Why does God make such an important issue out of marrying one person? And why does he instruct us over and over throughout the Bible to marry one person for a lifetime? And not just any person, but a person who is committed to him and to his son, Jesus Christ. And a person who desires to be committed to one person for a lifetime. If you think about it, the decision to marry someone is the second most important decision that you will make in your lifetime. What's the first? The first is to confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And right behind it is who you marry. You would think that the people who know God would give this a great deal of thought and prayer. But if you've done much marriage counseling, and I know Bill Holdridge have, and I certainly have over the years, in my experience, the average Christian does not give this nearly enough attention. Is there a recipe for marital success and happiness? I believe there is. I have a questionnaire here. Here's something that a single person who wishes to be married should ask himself or herself first. Am I willing to be committed to one person for my entire life? What if she turns into an ogre? Am I willing to wait upon God until he clearly lets me know just who that person is? Am I willing to wait? Am I committed to loving that person the way Jesus loves the church? Am I willing to work hard at the marriage when the going gets tough? And it will get tough. I'll never forget something that Elizabeth Elliot said, you know, the wife of Jim Elliot. If you'd be interested in hearing her message, I have a tape of it. It's one of the best messages I've ever heard anybody give. And I was a little surprised because a woman gave it. But anyway, it was a wonderful message. And she was talking about marriage. And she said that when that bride is on the arm of her father, and he's looking down at that handsome groom down there waiting for her to come down the aisle, she thinks to herself, that's my prize. She said it's really her surprise. Because you really don't know a person well until you get married. Then you get to know them. So you need to be committed to that person and a lifelong relationship with that person because you don't know them well. Even though you may have have, uh, spent a lot of time with them, there still will be many things, trust me, that come out. Many things. Many things about you and many things about her or about him. Now, how will I know as I wait for this person if God has sent this person into my life? Okay, I'm a man and I'm waiting for God to send me this person. When she shows up, how do I know it's her? Well, let me ask you some more questions. As a Christian, this should be your your question. Does this person I am interested in love God with all their heart and soul? Do they love God the way Jesus said we should love God? You shall love the Lord your God, he said, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Does this person love other people? Do they love others the way Jesus said we should love others? 
when he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Is this person kind? Do they prove their love for God by a life of obedience? Do they love to assemble themselves together with other Christians? In other words, do they like church? I have counseled people before and I ask, well, why are you marrying this person? And it turns out that maybe the man that she wants to marry doesn't like coming to church. I said, now what makes you think he's going to start coming after you get married if he doesn't like to come before you get married? How is this person's language? What words come out of this person's mouth? Is this person like the woman in Proverbs? In Proverbs 31, 26, it says, She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is a law of kindness. These are some questions that every person who wishes to marry should ask themselves. Well, after Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter, it says in the latter part of verse 1, if you look back at our text, Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. So it took a while. And when he finished all of that, he brought her to the city of David. Now, what is the city of David? I'd like for you, if you would, put up slide number two. Now, this is a slide of the city of Jerusalem. Now, notice the orange portion. That's the city of David. And it's in the midst of Jerusalem. Now, we learn about this from Deuteronomy. I lost my place in my notes, but I'm going to find it. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, listen to these words. This is about the city of David. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. This is before they inhabited all of Jerusalem. Who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David said on that day, Whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the millow and inward. So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. I'd like for, if you would, please, to put up the third slide. Now, if you go to Israel, there's a place where they have a scale model of the entire city of Jerusalem. And this is part of that scale model. But this is a that this is just a small portion of the total city. And this happens to be the city of David. This is where David captured the Jebusites, moved into the stronghold, and built for himself a pretty nice place. I don't know exactly how big that is, but I think it's a few acres. And he, he, if you'll notice, he's got a few nice places to live in there. 
Now let's look at verse 2. This is, kind of, this is a sad passage here. It says in verse 2, Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Is that a good reason to do that? In Leviticus chapter 17, for sake of time, I won't have you turn there, but you may want to make a note of it. Leviticus 17, it talks about this. It says, Speak to Aaron, to his sons, and all the children of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or who kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. God wanted sacrifices to be made at the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was, had been moved to a place named Gibeon, and later Solomon did go to Gibeon to offer sacrifices. And then verses 3 and 4, we have Solomon, when he was young, he loved the Lord. Unfortunately, as he grew older, he began, his heart drifted from God. But let's look at verse 3. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice, therefore that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand bird offerings on that altar. And then I'll read you a verse from Second Chronicles, which says, Then Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon, for the tabernacle of meeting with God was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. So Solomon did go find the tabernacle to make sacrifices. Now in verses 5 through 9, we have God appearing to Solomon and, to, and tells him to ask for a blessing. Now think about that. God appears to Solomon and says, Solomon, I want you to ask for a blessing. Does God do that kind of thing? Yes, he does. Look at verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued his, this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is to this day. Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? What a wonderful request for a leader to make. Let's consider God's appearance to Solomon and this request he made. Are there lessons that we can learn from this? Notice, first of all, that God showed up and talked to Solomon and said, I want you to ask. Does God want us to ask him? He said, ask, what shall I give you? 
I hear the words of Jesus. He said in Matthew 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. And then he also said, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Until you have asked, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. We serve a wonderful God. He wants our joy to be full. So he says, ask. Now the Apostle James said in chapter 4, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Then he says in chapter 1, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Think about the wonderful example that our Savior set for us. What a life of prayer he exhibited. And he said to us, when we think about the frequency of his prayers, many times he prayed all night. When the disciples were worried about the stormy sea, Jesus was in the boat and taking a snooze, and I think probably praying. And he also said that God's house shall be called a house of prayer. I'd like to tell you about a project that one of our sisters has, uh, wants to do, and it came out of prayer with others. It's called the 24-7 Prayer Project. 24-7 Prayer Project. And she's going to keep a book, and she would like to ask you if you want to sign up for an hour or so. She'd, she'd like to put your name in that book. And you take an hour one day a week or something. I'm not sure exactly how it will be divided up. But if we want to see God move in this church, we need to be people of prayer. This needs to become a house of prayer. Solomon's request says in verses 10 through 15 that Solomon's request pleased the Lord. In verse 10 it says the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked life for yourself, long life for yourself, nor asked for riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but you have asked for an understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your word. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall there be any like you arise after you. And I, I also have given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways, keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream, and he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. Solomon's request pleased God. How can we know if our prayers please God? How can we know that? How can we know if what we ask for is within the will of God? It says in 1 John 5, if we now this is the confidence 
that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. How can we know that we are making requests according to his will? Well, I have another list. Get to know the scriptures well. The more your requests line up with the Bible, the more you can be assured that you are praying according to the will of God. There's another truth that we need to learn, a truth that God put down in my heart a long time ago when I was in my 20s and required to uh, memorize a verse a day in a Bible class I was taking at Bible college. That verse verse was Philippians 2.13. It says, It is God who works in you both to will and do of his good pleasure. In other words, God is at work in us at all times, He's working on our desires. He's giving us desires that please him. And the more we're submitted to God and his word, the more we can believe that the desires that spring up in our hearts have been actually put there by the Lord himself. That's how he directs us. How how did you know to go to Alaska, for instance? There's no verse of scripture that says go to Alaska. There's no verse that tells you to come to this church. There's no verse to tell you the exact person to marry or the job to seek. God must work into the desires of your heart, and he is at work doing that. What a tremendous God we serve. It is God who works in you both to will and do of his good pleasure. If we are not walking close to him, if we are not obeying his word from the heart, we cannot trust that our desires originated in the heart of God. But if we do like God told kings to do, get a book with the law in it, write it down and read it every day and live according to what you see in that book. Now in the last part of the lesson in verses 16 through 28, we have God's wisdom demonstrated, the wisdom that he gave Solomon that he said he would give him, We have that wisdom demonstrated. Look at verse 16. Now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. Isn't it interesting? We don't see Solomon saying, get out of here, you're harlots. We don't see him do that, do we? He listens to them. He gives them an audience. I'm not saying that we should condone prostitution. But I'm saying that even prostitutes need to be saved. And God's people need to be witnesses to people who need to be saved. Anyway, two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house. And I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth. And we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. 
But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed he was not my son whom I had born. Mothers can understand this. When that baby is born, you first hold that baby. You get to know that baby pretty quickly. And I have an idea nobody could steal that baby from you. Anyway, she said, he was not my son whom I had born. And the dead one said, it is your son. And the first woman said, no, but the dead one is your son. And the living one is my son. Thus they spake before the king. And the king said, the one says, this is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, but your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, O my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, Let him him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And all Israel heard the judgment which the king had rendered. And they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Can you imagine that? Uh, We send out emails and call people, take out ads, do all sorts of things, get the word out. there There were over a million people in Israel, I think maybe three million or so. A lot of folks. And there was no telephone. There was no telegraph. (laughs) Don't say it. But the word got throughout Israel. You know, good news travels pretty fast. Bad news does too, of course. So God demonstrates the wisdom that he gave to Solomon. Now I'd like to close the lesson tonight by referring you to a passage in Nehemiah. Please turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. We're going to see that Nehemiah was really jealous for the Lord his God. And this is an account of that, and it kind of sums up what we've studied tonight. Nehemiah chapter 13, we're going to put in at verse 23. In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, intermarrying just like God told them not to. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them. I hope it was just strong language and not cursing. And struck some of them and pulled out their hair. He was hot for the Lord, wasn't he? And made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him. 
who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. So your company does make a difference. The company you keep does make a difference. You know, the Bible says, Come out from among them, and be ye separate, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, saith the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the words that you wrote for us tonight. We thank you, Father, that you are a loving God, and you do want to bless your people. We thank you for that. We thank you for your forgiveness, your love, and the way you want to bless your people. And we pray that you would help us to remember what we're supposed to remember from tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.